Many of you know this quite well, having been here before many times. But even if it's your first time, you know this experience from having been on retreats. It's very interesting, super in together, you know, because we are here together. But at the same time, it's very personal work that we do here together. And um, as you can sense, although the conditions here aren't perfect and the conditions that people are experiencing, they're not the same for each of us. For some, place, for some people, this place might feel really safe, like you really belong, and not so much for other people. You know, it just depends on people's lived experience, their backgrounds what they're bringing to this place. But one thing that we can share is this uh, good fortune of having these instructions from a wise person, the Buddha. And what makes, you know, the Buddha is actually, as you probably know, a technical term, not just for somebody with awakening, because Many people have had the deep awakening of the Buddha, but the Buddha did it without instructions, right? That, that's one of the specific characteristics of a Buddha, right? To awaken without the instructions of a Buddha. And then the other thing that makes a Buddha a Buddha is being able to articulate that very personal experience, to verbalize it in a way that supports other people along the way. So we have that articulation. And specifically what the Buddha has to do, you know, and he did for 45 years in different ways, not just one way. He had to map out as a natural process how it is that we keep doing the same thing and getting the same results. You know, what in Buddhism we call these cycles, these repeated stressful cycles where the grooves that have been cut in our minds and not, you know, it's not the same. I mean, they may have some similarities that we share like that. Some of the grooves are characterized by greed and some of our grooves are characterized by fear and anxiety and aversion and some of our grooves are characterized by being disconnected or thinking that we know, having a fixed view, delusion. But he mapped out this, what seems so personal to us, our experience of suffering. And of course, from this ordinary point of view, it is very personal, it's very real, as real as anything is real. The stress, the confusion, the self-doubt, the stressful striving, you know, all the different ways, patterns that we all have. He, he had to map that out as a natural process. Like how can something that seems so real, so about me, I, me, and mine, how can it be understood, experienced as a natural process, not referring back to me when that seems so counter my experience? So a lot of the maps, a lot of the teachings really are those you know, the Buddha's attempt to map that out in a way that not gives us like, okay, now I know the answer, but it, it gives us a bridge to help us understand or connect in a very real way with our own experience. And then he had to map out also, just as importantly, maybe more importantly, the awakening process, which can also feel very real and very personal. You know, like when we're when the mind is entangled, 
about something and then wisdom arises and does its job, kind of loosens the screws and whatever felt like a heavy load no longer feels like a heavy load. And, you know, uh, it's common to feel grateful in those moments and even a sense of spiritual pride, like, oh, I'm learning something. You know, so not even something that would outwardly look inappropriate, you know, just gratitude and some sense of accomplishment, how the mind was able to unhook. But he had to describe that releasing process, the mind releasing all that can be released as an empty natural process, not somebody who's a good Buddhist practitioner does, but something that happens naturally in nature when the conditions, the supporting conditions are there. Just like the repeated cycles of samsara, suffering, that happens naturally. Doesn't require this idea of a deluded practitioner messing things up, you know, acting out, getting caught, getting hooked, bad yogi. And that's really, these maps are really useful, these maps of awakening and these maps of samsara, like being caught in one of our vortexes of, you know, that have a real direct experiential sense of weight, heaviness, difficulty. Because just even on that conceptual level, it it provides the beginnings of being able to step back with some curiosity like, is this all about me being a bad yogi or me being a good yogi? Or is this just nature causes and conditions doing what it does when the supporting conditions are the way that they are right now in this moment? Then of course it's like this. So one of the maps I want to talk about tonight and probably next Tuesday as well, I'll go in more depth next Tuesday, is called the five faculties, the five controlling faculties. Some of the words tonight might be a little triggering, like controlling faculties. In uh, Pali, the Indriyas, um, and some of you might know, you know, Buddhist cosmology, or actually it's not Buddhist cosmology, it's the uh, pre-existing cosmology that the Buddha was born into. Um, Actually, I guess it comes from the Rig Veda, one of the early texts that may not have been in the Indian subcontinent, maybe from the people that came down into the Indian subcontinent um, a few centuries, uh, maybe a little longer before the time of the Buddha more than a few centuries before the time of the Buddha. And one of the ancient texts is the Rig Veda. And um, so you've probably, some of you have heard at least of Indra, very much related to Zeus, kind of the thunder god type. And one of the roles this idea of Indra is, is that it it is that force that kind of makes a little bit more order amongst the things that have power. You know, the, you know, in cosmology, the other gods in the heavens, it's like, who brings order to the gods? Who kind of gets things organized? And that's Indra. So uh, when the Buddha was teaching about this particular map of the five faculties, five controlling faculties, that's the word he used. And the Buddha did this a lot where he would use some of the pre-existing ideas and symbols and philosophical, religious, you know, tenets and uh, reuse them in a way that's really helpful. So we have these five controlling faculties and it's really about, it really helps us get interested in and illuminate like what is the, what are the often unconscious ideas we have about our own mind. Like uh, 
Sometimes we'll have the idea that the mind is like a trickster. Sometimes it's a really good friend. And sometimes it really seems like it's out to get me. And I remember hearing once from a a wonderful person, teacher. uh, His name was Swami Chidananda. He uh, was a very well-known Swami uh, monastic in the yogic tradition and uh, for a long time in charge of the Shivananda ashram in Rishikesh, an Indian man. And he gave this story about just this aspect of our conditioned mind. He said, you know, you, you got up early, you did your meditation, you know, you did clean the house, you did all the things you need to do, you got to work, you were productive, resolved some problems, you were kind to those around you. And there you are walking, you know, to your next appointment or whatever. And you walk past the bakery, your favorite pastry's there. And the mind says, go ahead, you've, you've been so good today. You totally deserve it. You know, it'll be delicious. Maybe get a cup of your favorite kind of coffee. And, you know, listen to the news or read the news for a little bit. You got a little time before your next appointment. So, you know, you follow the mind's advice. You go into the shop the bakery and you get your favorite pastry and your favorite beverage and you're sitting down and and then all of a sudden the mind changes its tune. What are you doing? You know you're gluten-free. You tell people you're gluten-free, you know, and you're not supposed to be having that much sugar and you certainly don't need the calories and uh, what are you, nuts? And uh, caffeine? <laughs> and it's like, is it the same mind? that was so encouraging and then so like uh, judgmental and condemning. And so that's sort of true that the mind is a little bit like that. It's not exactly clear what all the different references and the suttas when the Buddha refers to Mara. I'm sure most of you have heard some of these discourses where it's a little bit like the trickster aspect. I mean, it has kind of different meanings used in different ways. But no, just that manifestation of the conditioned mind that is simply acting out its own conditioning, which is not helpful, which is arising out of self-view or some kind of unhelpful view, unhelpful understanding, limited in some way. And yet it can have a very compelling voice. Like uh, the famous example is the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, you know, at the time of awakening or just before. And, you know, the Mara just had just the right words. Like, who do you think you are to deserve full awakening? The unshakable release of your heart. You've got to be kidding at you, you know, you're the special one, huh? It's like, and then, you know, that didn't work so well. So then, you know, Mara pulled out all the stops and, you know, tried lust and tried fear. And it's a beautiful image of, uh, some of you know, most of you know this, you know, the Buddha touching the earth, putting his hand down, calling upon the earth, the mother earth as witness. And there's uh, one particular way that's described as, you know, the, the grandmother, this planetary mother, sort of rises up, wrings her hair out, and washes all of the, you know, fear and defilements of the mind and manifestations of Mara away. Just that, that blessing of, uh, yeah, and it, it just so many aspects of that story that's, that's useful like the sense of, uh, I use this, you know, it's, we don't want to be, we don't want to get identified with uh, stories, but that doesn't mean we don't use stories productively, like calling upon the beneficent forces. And you don't even have to decide if they're internal or external. You can use the story in a way that's compelling to your own heart, Because what's important isn't how you're telling yourself the story. What's important is the sincerity. 
And it's similar to these maps, too, that it's like we don't really have effects, positive effects from our practice without being all in. So, you know, this is the thing about, it's always um, tricky when we share some of the maps of the Buddha because each of us, you know, in our own particular way are going to hear it. And then some of us, you know, might just immediately have some doubt. Well, maybe other people, but not me. I'm too old or I started my practice too late or I have this condition going on. I have this kind of mind or this kind of bodily situation or I'm, um, you know, this particular setting is not suitable in some way or uh, that's not why I'm here or, you know, we have all kinds of ways that we hear it to kind of allow ourselves kind of give ourselves an out. And, you know, it's not that we're not willing to work hard. I think human beings have a supernatural capacity, maybe all animals on the planet, to work hard. But we have to have a sense that they're, like it's onward leading, like the work is directed in a way that delivers something that the heart is seeking. We're not willing to work for the sake of work. That that feels like enslavement or uh, being taken advantage of. But you know how it is. Like, you know, if I if I told you that uh, there's a box hidden in this room, and in the box is full and complete, unshakable release of the heart forever, you know, we'd all put a lot of time into finding that box. And so, you know, the Buddha met lots of different people over those 45 years, and each time he taught, he tried to share the maps in a way that would be compelling to people. And, you know, those were a specific time and places, specific culture, you know, just the symbolic universe of those people back then, different than us, right? But still, you know, not perfectly, but still the stories, the teachings, we might have to do a little bit more work, you know, mostly because the Buddha's not in the room. But even the stories, you know, they've been passed down, coming out of a specific time and place. And that's that second part of wisdom. You know, the first part is hearing something that challenges our existing ways of framing, perceiving, being in the world, relating to experience. And then we have to learn how to own that information. However imperfect the information was, we have to use it in the context of our own experience. We have to like somehow be able to regurgitate it. And it's not like the, we don't need the complete pra- package. We just need to, little things that caught the mind's attention, that felt inspiring, felt useful, or for whatever reason, stuck. And then we bring it up all day long, little places here and there. How might this, right, we needed that initial bor- borrowed faith how might this be useful, this teaching, this little pointing out, this little way of framing, way of relating, way of understanding? How might it illuminate something here and now that the mind hasn't seen clearly yet? The heart hasn't felt deeply yet. How might this be useful? And then in moments when sort of the teaching and the way that we're personally using it in the moment lines up, aligns with the reality, the underlying reality, the way it is, what we call dhamma, dharma, then we have insight. Then the mind sees something, knows something, feels something that it hasn't before. 
And there's a, a shift in one's understanding. Our understanding going forward is affected by that. This is from uh, a wonderful book, a little dense, but I'm sure some of you have used it over the years, been around for a while. Um, Tani Sarobiku's book, The uh, Wings to Awakening. And this is the section on right view, discernment and right view. And here, the second paragraph, he writes, the function of right view is to look at events in the mind in a way that gives rise to a sense of dispassion. Remember, dispassion in a Buddhist context is that deepening sense, intuition, and even experiential sense that sense experience, whatever sense experience, will never be my savior. Even the most sublime sense experience, meditative experience, good meal, really wonderful friendship, as healing as life's really beautiful moments are and necessary, hopefully we have enough of those healing, beautiful moments. But it doesn't provide those moments, the most beautiful moments in our, that are possible in our sense realm, they don't liberate the heart. They don't provide endless security, freedom, release from the mind that wants another sense experience, wants more, wants it to be permanent, wants it to be mine so I can count on it, right? And so, and because of that, those of us in this realm of sense experience who don't understand that point around dispassion, often our relationship is, you know, we're hoping this next sit is really going to do it for us or this next meal or this next walk or this next sleep or whatever, you know that this may be the next interview. Once and for all, like that promise, this, this should do it. I hope this does it. Some of us, I mean, just honestly, when we go on a retreat, especially one that takes a lot of time to prepare and money and all kinds of negotiations with your loved ones and places where you have duties and responsibilities, like to come to the forest refuge, you know, a lot of, or at least in part, our attitude is like, this better deliver. <laughs> you know, because I, I had to make some serious sacrifices to be here. It's not easy. And to stay here, not only to get here, but then just to stay here is not always easy. I don't know if you know this line, <laughs> Payment Children has a lot of great lines, but I think one of the best is never underestimate the desire to bolt. Because <laughs> it can be really strong. It just feels so right. Get me out of here. So going back to this uh, passage from Wings to Awakening by Tani Sarubiku. Leading the mind to a state of Oops, go back. Um, gives rise to a sense of dispassion, leading the mind to a state of non-fashioning, and then on to awakening. Non-fashioning, not constructing, non-grasping, non-attachment, and then on to awakening. It does this by focusing on the way in which passion and desire lead to suffering and stress. And this it develops the mind's basic reaction to stress, the search for a way to escape from stress. Right? That's our basic relationship to dukkha. Like we're interested in dukkha because 
our teacher, the Buddha, tells us it's the not understanding, not being intimate with dukkha that's actually the cause for dukkha. You know, and it's that's so clearly the opposite because our instinct, you know, the conditioned habit is to want to run from dukkha. And uh, now the Buddha is saying, no, no, it's the not understanding, the not being intimate, not willing to meet it, connect with it, open to it. In a skillful way so that this reaction actually leads to utter release. When the mind sees, without its normal bewilderment, the actual process by which stress, dukkha, is caused, it will naturally let go of the causes. When it sees passion clearly enough to catch that passion in the act of leading to stress, it will naturally develop a sense of dispassion for and detachment from the passion so that it can view it simply as a mental event with no meaning in terms of anything else. This opens the way to the state of non-fashioning where the cause of stress is allowed to cease. Right, and that's what we're doing. Catching stress, catching passion in the act. Oh, when there's this, there's that. With the arising of this, there's the arising of that. Without this, there's not that. Without the arising of what, there's not suffering. There's not stress. And this is really what these maps, you know, they point to the lawfulness, the conditional nature. Stress, you know, it's not our destiny. It's just something that happens. Like weather, when the conditions are right then there's stress. There's this personal sense of I'm suffering. I'm really hurting. I want out. It's hard to, you know, we use our interpretations, our story about why I'm suffering to actually create some distance doesn't really work. It's just, it just turns out to be another layer of stress, like to have to have an interpretation of why I'm suffering, why I'm justified in getting tight, basically. And of course, it leads to blame and complaining. And like the Buddha says in one of the suttas, lamentation and beating one's breast. You know, why me? Or that experience of stress, as you might remember from that discourse, leads onward to a sincere search. Who is it that knows something about the experience of dukkha? Who is it? And in a way, like this isn't the only map, but this map of the controlling factors, the five spiritual faculties, This is the Buddha's compassionate answer to that sincere question that we ask. Who is it that knows something about this very human experience of my heart feeling burdened, feeling tight, feeling that squeeze, feeling constrained, limited? Who is it that knows something about that? Who can point the way? The Buddha says, the five spiritual faculties when developed and cultivated lead to the deathless, are bound to the deathless, culminate in the deathless. And another sutta, there are these five strengths. What five? The strength of conviction or faith the strength of effort or persistence, the strength of mindfulness, the strength of samadhi, concentration, stability of mind, and the strength of discernment or wisdom. 
These are the five strengths, right? The five faculties. Just as the river Ganges flows to the east, slopes to the east, inclines to the east, in the same way, when a practitioner develops and pursues these five strengths, they flow to unbinding, to liberation, slope to unbinding, incline to unbinding. And how is it that when, that when a practitioner develops and pursues the five strengths, the five faculties, they flow, slope, incline to unbinding, to freedom? And this, I think, is this next piece is really important because it's giving us really important information about how to relate to the map, how to use it, and, and like what is the effective flavor of the map of these teachings. Because otherwise, we tend to, you know, swing, I, at least in my own experience, you know, so much history of swinging into that strident, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be a good yogi, I'm going to be fearless, I'm going to try hard, I'm going to defeat the enemy, you know, that kind of militaristic, often associated with male energy, you know, approach to spiritual life. And then, you know, when, because that is exhausting and it doesn't work, so when the exhaustion or the sense that it's not helping arises, then I tend to swing into giving up, you know, exhaustion, despair, get me out of here. I guess it's not in the cards for me. You know, and then energy would rally and get back on that horse and ride back into battle against our mind and only to be once again humiliated and defeated and betrayed by our practice and doubt and exhaustion and thinking that other people can do it but not me. You know, all those, you know, it's different for each of us, but we have our own particular version of giving up. And there's some wisdom in it, actually, because the way we were practicing wasn't helping, right? So this next piece of the same sutta, right, he's saying, uh, he's asked, he asks the question, often the Buddha does this, you know, he asks a question, then he answers it. And how is it that when a practitioner develops and pursues the five strengths, they flow, slope, incline to unbinding? Right? So this, he's painting this picture of a natural process, not something that some you know, macho, fearless yogi is going to do, but a, a natural process that we practitioners can align with, can learn how to align with, like harmonize with. Just like we're often harmonizing with cultural patterns of greed and cultural patterns of fear and hate, you know, aligning with these natural cultural forces of samsara. But we can also align, harmonize with natural processes that lead to this unbinding. And the flavor they have, which he talks about next, there is a case where the practitioner develops strength of conviction or faith, confidence, dependent on seclusion. And remember, seclusion means, I mean, being at the forest refuge is a kind of seclusion. But here we're really talking about the mind secluded from the hindering, defiling qualities of mind. So in a wholesome place. Secluded from unwholesomeness, you could say. Dependent on dispassion some intuition that the pursuit of the perfect sense experience isn't going to deliver. That's the de- dependence on dispassion. Dependent on cessation, that's the sometimes direct experience or intuition 
that the load of self, selfing, can cease, can be abandoned, can be shed, resulting in letting go. One develops strength of persistence or effort, strength of mindfulness, strength of concentration, strength of wisdom or discernment, dependent on seclusion, dispassion, cessation, resulting in letting go. This is how a practitioner, when developing and pursuing the five strengths, flow, slope, incline to unbinding. So we're, we're using the map. However we engage the faculty of faith, confidence, conviction, Right, And remember that the faith that we have isn't that I can do it. I mean, that might come up, and that's not necessarily bad. The faith is that the confidence is that suffering is optional. Now, I know that can be offensive. You know, like I've been more recently uh, dealing with some health stuff, you know, and if someone were to come to me and say, hey, did you know that the misery you're feeling in your body right now is optional? You know, it would feel offensive, like you don't know my experience. And certainly there are people dealing with, you know, experiences in life, difficulties that are obviously many, many, many times more real, more intense than that. But we're not actually going to open to dukkha if there isn't a little thread, a little crack, that there's something, some humility like, what is this? It, it seems so real, this sense of personal difficulty. But, if we're, but, but I'm told, so initially that borrowed faith, and then some intuition that there's something liberating about getting interested in dukkha. That's why, you know, just in a very simple way, that's why we come into the hall and we sit and we don't give up, get up the moment we feel uncomfortable. We get interested. Oh, pain in the body or wanting to bolt, wanting to move. That's interesting. Even, you know, little, just little things about, uh, I just, I've noticed this a lot when I'm on retreat with myself and I have a little meal reflection. Sometimes I'll do before the meal. And I'll just notice, like, how much resistance there is. Just like, I'm not going to do it. But it's, you know, it's just like two minutes. (laughs) I don't know. It's just like, putting the foot down, and and just that getting curious about that mind and the the rigidity or the fixation or the tightness of that mind. No, it's just too much. I just want to eat my food. You know, it's not fair. You deserve this food. So all the, that's the place to start, these kind of more ordinary places of dukkha and just to like dependent on seclusion. Okay. That's really another way of saying, you know, like in the four noble truths, dukkha, you know, dukkha is my teacher. It should be known. It should be met. It has been met. Right. It's like there is dukkha. It's my teacher. And I'm going to be a respectful student as best I can. And now I am a respectful student. I don't know if you recognize that from the discourse on the Four Noble Truths, but for each of the Noble Truths, there's three insights. The insight, the honest insight, oh, there's stress here. There's a squeeze in the heart. The heart feels burden here. Okay, dukkha. Oh, it's relevant. <laughs> it's a teacher. It's not a problem. It's a teacher. And I, and I have some semblance of respect for this, enough to be interested. And then the third insight is, 
I have become a sincere student. I'm truly interested. I want to hear what this dukkha has to say. I want to feel what's here to feel. I want to let it reveal itself. That's meeting it with seclusion. And, you know, we'd have a lot of confidence that the opposite isn't the way. You know, can you imagine the opposite of the five faculties? You know, here's my strategy. You could build a church around it, you know. The church of no faith, no confidence. The church of, you know, why bother? We're all helpless. We're all victims. Why bother? We're all subject to impersonal, external forces that we don't control, being pushed around. It's not fair. But at least I'm not going to make senseless effort. I'm not going to apply myself because there's nothing to do. And I'm not going to be alert. I'm not going to be connecting and open to the way it is. I'm going to rely on distraction. You know, I'm going to use the part of the mind that can construct like dreams, you know, construct reality. And I'm going to inhabit that. And when it gets boring, I'll construct another reality, another fantasy, another problem to solve, another thing to plan, another something to fantasize about. And I'll do my best to get good at that distraction And wisdom, you know, the opposite of wisdom would be like, I'm just going to pretend I know. (laughs) Because knowing that I don't know is just uncomfortable. And it, it makes me feel responsible to knowing what I don't know, to waking up, which has turned out for me to feel hopeless or like a betrayal. So we give up. And don't think of this, uh, the five faculties as, you know, in a linear way. First you need faith, then you need faith will support effort, that applying ourselves, and what are we applying ourselves to? This value of being open to the way it is, being awake, being mindful, and then stabilizing with the continuity of mindfulness. We get the samadhi, the, the stability of mind which is what is the proximate cause for seeing things that we haven't seen before. Insight, the deepening of wisdom, which supports faith. And it's really about planting seeds, you know, and realizing that seeds are potent. (laughs) You know, I mean, just so wonderful being here in central Massachusetts where the forests are becoming more mature, you know, after... I don't know, a couple hundred years or more ago, most of a lot of the farmland was abandoned because it's so stony, you know, and uh, so the, a lot of the forests have come back and and just, uh, you know, little seeds lead to these massive trees, which then produce thousands and thousands and thousands of seeds over their lifetimes. And you know that, uh, that sense that... Uh, It's like instead of thinking of causes and conditions, karma, the lawfulness, the conditional nature of our experience here as a problem, we want to align with it. Because it's actually, that's the beginning. In Buddhism, that's the beginning of wisdom. When we, instead of feeling doomed by the complexity and the lawfulness of how things are unfolding, you know, where you could slide into nihilism or some kind of deterministic idea that no matter how hard I try, I can't counter all the other forces in my life. So why bother? But actually really understanding the conditional nature and that we in every moment, this mind in every moment, It's participating. Even when we're trying not to participate, that's the seed we're planting, the seed of trying not to participate. You know, 
the seed of sitting on the couch. That's a seed that has that sets stuff in motion in our heart, in our mind, in our body, in the world. Everything we think, say, and do with intention is part of the constructing, fashioning process of what's unfolding here. We get to actively co-author, and actually we don't have a choice. It's not like we can opt out of the co-authoring of what's unfolding. And we're basically planting seeds that are wholesome and onward leading to awakening, supportive of the awakening process, or we're planting seeds that are supportive of dukkha, or seeds that are somewhat mixed. And then the question is, are we interested in what kind of seeds we're planting? And the map, you know, like the five spiritual faculties of faith and mindful and faith and uh, persistence, like whatever wisdom and faith, whatever direction, inspiration that creates in the heart, then we're going to apply ourselves to it, planting those seeds. And if it's in alignment with how the Buddha taught at least, those seeds support more moments of being open, being awake, being aware. And the cause for samadhi is more those moments of awareness, right? It's the continuity of awareness that supports the arising of that stability that we call samadhi, that unification of the mind and heart, which leads the mind to see what it hasn't seen, which supports more faith. So just as we move through our space, just curious about how we can, in any moment, walking down the hall, getting our meal, sitting in the meditation hall, getting ready for bed, getting up in the morning. It's like there's always ways. We're planting seeds anyway. So all we're doing is we're bringing in this, you know, skillfully, because it it can be done in a way that we can use to condemn ourselves, to hate ourselves. But we're bringing in skillfully this sense, honey, it matters. I have the capacity right now to be planting wholesome seeds. I have the capacity to be refraining from planting unwholesome seeds, the seed of doubt. And it really matters, like the active thing, the karmic act that's setting things in motion is often at a place like the forest refuge, how we're paying attention and what we're paying attention to. Because in every moment, you know, there's a lot of possibilities of what we can open to, pay attention to, and a lot of different ways to pay attention, like with kindness, with actual interest, or we can pay attention with boredom. You know, so that how we pay attention and what is a karmic act. And it, it may... When we think the thought, oh, I've got to do this forever, I've got to plant wholesome seeds forever, that idea can be overwhelming. But the actual choice to plant a wholesome seed right now in one moment, it's not such a big deal. Or to refrain from planting an unwholesome seed, which is wholesome. Not planting an unwholesome seed is a wholesome seed, right? It's not so hard to, like in any moment, to be a little forgiving or a little kind or a little curious, a little persistent, a little steadfast for just a moment. And then like if we, you know, something arises and 
the mind body flinches and gets tight, well, it's just a perfect moment to plant the seed of compassion and curiosity. Flinching, getting tight is like this. It is this experience being known. I'll just end with this uh, little teaching from the Dhammapada, famous, and it really, it it speaks to this uh, idea of seeds and the willingness to keep planting seeds and to really have a lot of confidence. However long it takes, it's really can be useful to have a vast view. So the passage is like this. Don't disregard unwholesome thinking. It won't, thinking it won't come back to me. With dripping drops of water, even a water jug is filled little by little. A fool is filled with evil. Don't disregard merit. You know, what sets emotion, wholesome states and qualities? Thinking it won't come back to me. With dripping drops of water, even a water jug is filled little by little. A sage is filled with merit, with goodness. So let's just put down the words. Take a moment. And let's end the evening by chanting the reflections on sharing of blessings. It's on the back side of the precepts and refuges. <clears throat>